Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining me on this Sunday for worship uh, with Christ Central of Southern California. Uh, as you can tell, I am recording from home once again, just like last week. Last week, I experienced severe flu-like symptoms, had uh, chills and uh, body aches, the likes of which I have never felt before in my life. My wife also shared some similar symptoms. Uh, thankfully, Taylor and Elizabeth have mild to almost no symptoms of flu or, of course, we started taking a host of tests uh, for COVID, uh, which came back invalid or negative for days on end. Well, now we're into the second week, hopefully at the tail end, and uh, we just found out we all tested positive for COVID. Um, God is merciful and good, and my heart does go out to all those who experience this in much worse forms, and you have seen loved ones that have been exposed to it or caught it and have suffered from it. Um, as all the health experts tell us, insofar as it's possible, yes, wear your mask, practice social distancing, but the only, I think, foolproof way, now from my own personal experience, is just don't go out at all, if at all possible. Don't meet anybody, because we can be asymptomatic feel like nothing is wrong, even test negative at home, and still go out and be exposed to it or actually pass it along. Uh, we are feeling much better, and I just wanted to say that to you, so I'm recording from home once again. Also, after I recorded the sermon last week on a Wednesday early afternoon, uh, then I turned on the television and watched the news of our Capitol building uh, being stormed uh, and taken over. Um, to be honest, I don't think I was totally shocked, but uh, very troubled and upset, felt nauseous to my bones. Uh, my girls were born from that pristine, beautiful uh, lawn of the White House as well as the Capitol building. It's one of my favorite places in all the world. But moreover, uh, to see the kind of turmoil and outrage um, and just lies, just flat out lies, dominating our current uh, political culture um, causes me, your pastor, to ask you, uh, we really, really need to join together in prayer. Prayer not only for protection and health from COVID and all the devastation, but a prayer of lament and of sadness and weeping and repentance uh, for all um, of the ways that we've come to this point as a country. Um, that's really what I want to begin by saying. Uh, and I'll, I'll mention more of it as God's word and spirit leads me there. Um, today, <clears throat> we begin a new sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. Uh, I find no other book more appropriate because the Gospel of Mark is the earliest, shortest, most succinct gospel about Jesus Christ. Our world, church, community, friends, neighbors, believers or not, are more in need of resetting and restarting our lives upon this gospel uh, than I think we have could have imagined. And so if you would join with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 1, verses 1 and then 9 through 11. We're just going to begin with these three verses as we launch this series. So let's give our full attention to this. 
I'll read it for us. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and then verses 9 through 11. This is God's word. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. So, we begin the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Mark. Oh, how we need the gospel. The gospel means such joyous news. Good news. (laughs) The goodest, the greatest, the best news that you could ever hear or grasp because this is the very gospel of God and of his own son, Jesus Christ. But how exactly does this gospel begin? What I mean by that is what are the first movements or the first marks that the joyous good news of God has begun its work in you? So I'm just going to borrow straight from Mark Uh, His own writing style, which is concise. Uh, He doesn't waste any time. Uh, He's vivid. And he almost always cuts to the main points or cuts to the conclusion. So let me just start up front with the answer. The answer to the question, how does the good news of Jesus Christ really begin? How do you know it began its work in you and in me? Here's the answer. Here's the answer. My understanding of this gospel. Uh, The good news begins... When life is no longer about you. The gospel begins its joyous good work by bringing in a new and total and perfect world. A new world order in which peace and righteousness and truth reign when the world no longer revolves around you. When the world stops revolving around me. Or, my favorite system, party, philosophy, economics, government, worldview. When the world no longer revolves around you or me, or revolves around every system and worldview that you and I can come up with. You know, by the way, it is inherently and terribly flawed. But as the ancient Isaiah prophesied in chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, He promised one who would bring a perfect and new world order. Quote, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time Forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So today, let's look at the beginning of the gospel according to Mark. And again, it begins by having the entirety of your life center around Jesus and not on you. When I just ask some basic questions by way of background, as we study and learn this book together, the who's, the when and the where, the why, and the what. Basic but very important questions whenever you want to understand 
a book. <clears throat> so excuse me, let's start with the who's. Who wrote this and who did he write it to? Well, it was Mark himself, whose other name was John. You can look at Acts chapter 12, verse 25. He has two names, but it's John Mark. John Mark heard and took and arranged the personal preaching of Apostle Peter. And he fashioned it into this book, the Gospel of Mark. They were very, very close friends. Mark was also, according to the book of Acts, the cousin of Barnabas. Mark had accompanied Barnabas and the famous Apostle Paul on missionary travels. At one point, they actually had a falling out. Paul was done with Mark, parted ways from him. This is actual evidence that the Bible is written with absolute realism. They include all the embarrassing, sinful details of their lives. They had stubbornness. They were sinful. They got angry. They could not reconcile. They failed. But later on in the record of the New Testament, John, Mark, and Paul actually reconciled. And in one of Paul's final letters, while he was cold and lonely in prison, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, he specifically asked for Mark. Mark to come and visit him. So who wrote this? A flawed but Holy Spirit-filled man by the name of John Mark. Who did he write it to? Who was his uh, first audience? Well, he had a special interest to write to people of all backgrounds. All backgrounds. You don't have to have a religious background. You don't have to have religious jargon. You didn't have to be raised in the synagogue or the temple or the church. He wrote it to Gentile readers in and around Rome. And this is why you have Mark on occasion uh, going out of his way to explain Jewish customs. He translates Aramaic words because his main interest is to, is to talk to and for people of any background to come to believe and follow and worship Jesus as the Son of God. Now, what's the when and the where? Okay, when was this written and from where? Uh, most commentators, most scholars will tell you this is the earliest gospel, again, the most succinct gospel written around uh, the early 60s, 60s AD. But in 64 AD, you have to understand some history here because there was a week-long fire that ravaged almost the entirety of Rome. And after that week-long fire, it broke out a second time. There were wide circulated rumors that Emperor Nero himself had ordered the fire and uh, he actually just continued to leave it unabated. He left it alone. He wanted it to, to, to wreak havoc because, as this may not come as a shocker to you, um, politicians and any of us who start to love power and control, um, we can easily use it and abuse it for sick personal ends. And so this Emperor Nero uh, had to find a, a scapegoat at one point uh, for these fires that was just devastating their society, and he turned all the blame upon Christians. Tacitus, an early ancient historian, wrote about these events during Emperor Nero's time, 64 AD. He wrote about it a generation later, and I just want to quote from him. Nero fabricated scapegoats. He punished with every refinement the notoriously depraved Christians, as they were popularly called, popularly called. Nero had self-acknowledged Christians arrested. Then on their information, large numbers were condemned. Their deaths were made farcical. Dressed in wild animal skins, they were torn to pieces by dogs or crucified 
or made into torches to be ignited after dark as substitutes for daylight. Nero provided his own gardens for the spectacle and exhibited displays in the circus. It was felt that they were being sacrificed to one man's brutality rather than to national interests. True story. This is true history. Just like the pandemic is true. <laughs> President Biden won the election. That is true. There's no widespread other, uh, evidence that tells us otherwise. Ongoing tensions and conversations about injustice, currently now our democracy, and race, they continue. These are truths that we have much to um, learn and to repent of and digest and grow as a country together. But just as in 64 AD, Emperor Nero, it was a game. And women and children were no exceptions. They would be covered with the wool of sheep so that wild dogs and animals could tear them apart in the middle of a stadium. And they would also be lit up, lit up as torches at night. Now it is during this time that commentators would say John Mark himself was with Peter in Rome. And popular records would tell us that Peter himself would be martyred, suffer a, a, a horrific death, being crucified upside down in Rome. But Mark, who had been with Peter, ranged Peter's preaching into this gospel. Uh, he was actually in Rome with him probably during this time. You can look up 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verse 13, which gives some reference to this. So this was written by John Mark. It was written to people of all backgrounds in and around Rome. It was written in the 60s AD. Uh, and you have to understand uh, the horrific background, immediate background, of uh, when and where Mark wrote this gospel, okay? Now, why? Why did he write it? I I'm sure you have now a, a very strong idea as to why this gospel wa uh, was written in the first place. Uh, let, let me speak to fellow parents. You know, you, you have the responsibility to talk to your children uh, at a certain age, you know, about love, the birds and the bees, um, these days we have to talk about, you know, devastation, losses, and, and death, and, and the restrictions that have been caused by COVID. Uh, I mentioned some of the most current hot topic tensions that uh, we need to speak to our children as well, uh, as they are of, of, of the appropriate um, age. Now, but can you imagine having to have a talk with your children about martyrdom? Um, having to talk to your children about the very literal and immediate possibility that your son or daughter would have to suffer and die on account of Jesus because of being identified as a Christian, a little Christ, the one who follows Jesus as the Christ. What would you say? What is there to say? And here's why we get to the big why. Mark, an able theologian, uh, a, a gifted writer, but most of all, he was a spiritual parent. See, he was a pastor. And he wrote this gospel to instill courage and strength to people who were facing terror, suffering, and certain death because of Jesus. 
So we briefly looked at the who's, the when and where, the why, and now we get to what is this all about? Mark answers the question, will the real Jesus please show up? Give me the real Jesus. Let me meet and worship and love and fall in love with the only and true risen Jesus who is coming back to judge all of history, all of my own life, your story, my story, without partiality, but with perfect holiness and righteousness. And yet, he came to give us a salvation that we never thought we even needed and in a way that is way in a way that's better than we could have expected. Will the real Jesus please stand up? <laughs> it was a southern pastor who admitted at the airport while dropping off his daughter cuz she's about to take a mission trip to Africa. He said, "You know, my wife and I raised her. We raised her as middle-class respectable Christians. But we never thought she'd become a real one." We never thought that she'd become a real one. See, how do you know? Have you ever asked this question? How do I know? How do you know that you worship and follow the real Jesus? Not, not the Jesus of your own liking or creation or comfort zone. Not the Jesus even of the church that you grew up with. The Jesus of current culture. How do you know you got the real Jesus? That's why Mark's gospel exists. Is your Jesus really all that different from Confucius? Does your Jesus go far beyond a, a moral teacher or a guide who tells you how, to, how you should live your life so you can be blessed? You know, the gospel means good news. That means it's news about what Jesus did to live and die for you. Religion always tells you how you should live so that you can get God to love and bless you back. Which Jesus is spoken of on those signs that we're waving at the Capitol building? It says, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Right alongside other symbols and signs that were neo-Nazi in nature, white supremacist, or the symbols of the Q, QAnon conspiracy theories that have been running rampant. Which Jesus saves? Which Jesus are we talking about? Or you might say, well, you know, in those liberal educated elite circles, there is no Jesus even to be found. There is no mention of Jesus. Maybe. Maybe you're right. Maybe Jesus is nowhere to be found on the far right or the far left. And did you know he's not found right in the middle either? Where is the real Jesus? Will the real Jesus please stand up? Mark shows us and reveals us who he is. He will not fit into any camp. He will never be nice and neat. He's never going to agree and approve and endorse all the positions and thoughts that you have become so accustomed to. You just can't have it this way or else you have a Jesus of your own creation. One of the greatest telltale signs you have a real Jesus at all is that he will make you self-critical. He's going to expose all kinds of glaring inconsistencies and loopholes in my own life and thinking and most of all in my lack of social compassion and sacrifice for those who are really in need. So will the real Jesus stand up? Mark shows us, he reveals us, and he does not waste any time. He gives us no Christmas story, no birth narratives, but he just starts with the bang with the full grown-up adult Jesus at the launch of his ministry. Immediately is a word that Paul, uh, excuse me, that Mark uses at least over 40 times. 
and it moves us right to the first climax in the first half of his book in Mark chapter 8 verses 27 to 29 when Jesus asks his disciples who do people say that I am who do people think I really am who do you think I am and then Peter triumphantly answers you are the Christ so what is this book really about? Will the real Jesus please stand up? The first half is a revelation of his true identity, his real identity. And then from chapter 8 and uh, moving on forward, it shows us how Jesus accomplished his main mission to save the world in the most unexpected way. The first half is about his real identity. The second half is how Jesus came to save the world in the most unexpected way. And the most unexpected revolutionary thing about Jesus is that he didn't come over to take over, take your life by brute force. Now he came to give away his life in self-sacrificing love. So that's what this is book is about, at least in two main parts. And as we get into verses 9 and 11 today, it just gives us a brief introduction to the real identity of Jesus, and actually an introduction to multiple identities here. You see, it says, verse 1, yes, back there, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, Christ is not his last name. It is a title. A title which is translated literally from the Anointed One or the Messiah. It is a, it's the loftiest of titles, not a last name. And then Mark goes out right from the beginning verse. The Son of God. The Son of God. Meaning, the true identity of Jesus, he goes well beyond any popular understanding or expectation of what the Messiah would be. He is nothing less than divine. He is actually God himself. He is the Son of God. And Mark raises the stakes by identifying in the following verses, two and so, uh, 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 two and, um, uh, so forth, which we did not read, by quoting from Isaiah, where it says, there will be a voice calling out in the, in the wilderness, a voice crying out in the wilderness, to prepare the way of the Lord, or to prepare the way for the Lord. Mark, after he says, Jesus is the Christ, that's his title, he is the Son of God, then he quotes Isaiah, who says, John the Baptist would be the voice calling out, and he would prepare the way for who? He would prepare the way for the Lord. Mark here just identifies, he equates Jesus Christ as the Lord himself. There is a uh, well-used uh, textbook on, on uh, the world's religions by Houston Smith. I think I've shared this once before. And he summarizes the history of all world religions in this way. He says there's only been two uh, figures in world history so impressive that people around them and to this day have been tempted to worship them as gods. Only two, Buddha and Jesus. The monumental difference between Buddha and Jesus, however, is that Buddha categorically denied that he was ever a god. He refused being treated or worshipped as a god. And yet in history we find that with this Jesus, Jesus welcomed it. It's like he expected it. He received the worship and the confession of people hailing him actually as the son of God. The Lord himself. And even when he got arrested, he was mocked. He was spat upon. He was beaten and overrun by a gang of soldiers. And eventually crucified, publicly humiliated, put to death 
naked and splayed out on a cross. Never once did Jesus deny, categorically deny, that he is not God himself. The real identity of Jesus Christ. Who is this? Will the real Jesus please stand up? He is the Christ, the Son of God. He is the Lord himself. And then when we look at his baptism, starting in verse 9, you actually see multiple identities being revealed. Here, as Jesus was being baptized, he came up out of the water. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. And there was a spirit, this spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came blaring out of heaven. You are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. We have three active persons. We have three parties involved here just at the baptism of Jesus Christ. We have the Spirit of God descending like a dove. We have a voice booming out of heaven who calls Jesus his son, meaning he must be the father. And then we have Jesus the son himself. This is in direct correlation with the act of creation, how everything in the world came into being. You had the Spirit of God hovering over the waters like a dove. You had God the Father speaking everything into existence. And other passages, including Proverbs 8, tells us that Jesus the Son was actively at the right hand of God the Father, creating and bringing everything into existence. These same three parties at the baptism of Jesus were the same three parties active at the creation of the whole world. And so, do you want to really know what paradise or heaven is really going to be like? Do you know what paradise really, uh, uh, do you know how it, how, how it functions? What is its dynamic? Cornelius Plantinga, a philosophy professor uh, who happens to be a, a Christian believer, he observes from the Bible, quote, the persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other, and defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. God's interior life, therefore, overflows with regard for others. At the introduction of the very real identity of Jesus and the multiple identities of God the Father and the Spirit who descended like a dove, what do we catch a glimpse of? Three in one. Three active persons, constantly adoring, honoring, deferring, centering around one another, deflecting to one another. So let me just close with so what. We've asked the who's, when and the where's, and the why's, and what the Gospel of Mark is all about. And we've gotten an introduction into the real identity of Jesus, and there's a God the Father, and there's the Holy Spirit. So what? You know, it's become a weekly routine uh, that my gals are fixated now and they watch this show called The Bachelor. Yes, they have been watching that religiously and I could see, I can just see from the other room the look on their faces. You know, that look of just like dumb glee, lostness of a romantic type of love, you know, love at first sight. And there have been times, truth be told, I just want to smash the TV. Uh, I don't want to just turn it off. I want to smash it. But, you know, I got a lot of self-control. Uh, Super Bowl's coming up. Don't want to have to watch it on a small iPad. Don't want to have to go look for another Super Bowl special. 
So, um, you know, I, I know that my girls who <laughs> have those fluttering feelings that we all got when, yeah, first had the taste of the feelings of ro romantic love, the ideals of it. We all know that it's shallow and blind, you know, that over the years, your eyes begin to open and a lot of the things that you once thought in romance actually no longer turn out to be true. You might think, oh, what a downer. Spoken like a to total father. To spoken like a pastor who just wants to poo-poo on all the romance. Now, the reason I say this is, do you know that this never happened in the love life of God himself? That there's been no sudden disappointment or regret, but that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have been forever adoring and loving on one another from perfection to perfection. From perfect purity, perfect splendor, perfect righteousness, perfect truthfulness, perfect integrity, perfect holiness, absolute perfect beauty. Just going on forever and ever and ever and ever. They've never had to wake up and snap out of it. They've been doing this forever. And so this notion of romantic love, as you may well come to know, is nothing compared to the kind of love that you learn and you give for someone over many, many years. And then when you have to say goodbye or lose someone that you have loved over many, many, many years, someone who is so dear to your heart, I don't know anybody in the world who does not feel deep down in their souls how absurd, how wrong, or even downright evil this is that we have to have someone we love, that we have to lose someone we love, because instinctively we are hardwired to, hard to believe and feel. Love is supposed to last. It's not just something real, it's supposed to never end. It's supposed to never end. Now here is the so what to all of life. To love someone else is at the origins of even why the entire world was made. Did you know love explains the meaning and the purpose of your life? But I want you to think of how many jobs, corporate or creative or on the side, are structured so that if you begin to do well, you won't have any time for loving relationships. That's why families and marriages sometimes just fall apart. You lose your best of friends. You see, the secret the secret to the life of God, if you want to experience and taste what God himself has been doing forever and ever and ever, you have to be willing to come to a point where you actually suffer the loss of maybe advancement or time or money. You have to limit yourself, experience the loss of options that comes from a deep, committed, lasting love relationship. And when you and I do not ever learn to excel or enjoy loving relationships, if that, is not, that does not become the goal of your life or priority number one, did you know that you are out of touch with reality? Past, present, and future? Did you know that you and I actually miss out on the meaning of the universe? Of even why God made you in the first place? And you and I will be incapable of experiencing the type of life, love, and joy that God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit 
have been enjoying from all of eternity. You know, this world is not created by one individual. This world is not a random violent accident of impersonal forces. This world is not just in process, but it was made by God who is the happiest and the healthiest and the holiest community. Diversity in unity because he's three in one. You see, in other words, there is no gospel. There is no gospel. The gospel never begins if it's just about you. The gospel only begins with God who is three in one. And he actually made us so that we can start to taste and join in the type of life, love, and joy that he has always had. Let me close with this. Nobody might tell you until sometimes a little too late, but there's actually nothing more debilitating, more joyless, more boring, more of a turnoff, more debilitating, and more life-taking than a self-centered life. You know, you might be friendly only because people are friendly with you. You might be a very sociable person, but never sacrificial. You like laughing a lot. You have a great sense of humor when it comes at the expense of others, never at your own expense. You might even fall in love multiple times until your own goals and interests have to be set aside. You can be very generous or charitable as long as it doesn't cost you too much. And if it makes an you look and feel better, even better. You might be religious because this is exactly how you get God to owe you and get your back. Self-centered living, a solo life where everything in the entire world revolves around me, that's the black hole. Where everyone and everything else around you gets sucked in only to vanish and you remain alone. You're left all alone on your own mountain of transfiguration, if you will. So what is this gospel all about? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lord himself. How does it begin? Well, do you know why God made you? God didn't need to get life, love, and joy from you. He made you to give you, give you life, love, and joy, even his own. And that you get to share it with him. God made you and then he sent his son, Jesus Christ. To give you all of that. Everything you ever really needed. Better than you, 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 you could have ever expected. In his own life, death and resurrection. When you start to see. When you start to get gripped. And your heart is moved. By seeing that Jesus even he didn't make it about himself, but laid down his life so that he could get to you. He laid down his life so that he could make it about you. If that moves you, this is the beginning of the gospel's work in you. And this gospel will make you into a person full of life, love, and joy for world dying for gospel news. For really joyful good news. Let me pray for us. 
Father in heaven, so much recovered. I know it was in a choppy way, but Holy Spirit, nobody here just needs to hear what I talked about or how I tried to explain it. We need the real Jesus. Oh Lord, would you please have the real Jesus show up in my life, in our lives, filling us with a joy unspeakable, a joy that cannot be lost. Holy Spirit, as we study your word, may you save lives, change lives for good and forevermore. Hear us, we pray for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.